It's an overhead question. When microservices came up, there was a saying, micro is the definition of if you want to rebuild a service, it takes a bunch of days. And if you look then about almost hundreds of thousands of microservices, well, that becomes very complicated and you have to think about how to manage them. And there are certain things you'd need for each and every micro and that you basically double or quadruple or whatever multiply. Therefore, the answer again is freedom. If you have enough freedom and you make sure there's psychological safety, you have built an organization, which is probably set up. If you regularly sync between the architectural future needs and your organization, and you ultimately make sure that the people understand how you think about what's the context, then freedom solves many of the problems because freedom attracts great talent. Great talent, you know, basically can do great work. Welcome to The Craft. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Craft. This is Patrick Herman, investor at Picos Capital. And today I'm so excited to have Daniel Kroos joining this fourth episode of The Craft, where I talk with pioneers of the coding frontier. Daniel Kroos is the co-founder and chief organizational plumber, as well as chief information officer at Flix, which is formerly known Flixbus, which is the world's largest tech mobility company having raised more than 1 billion of US dollars venture funding from the likes of General Atlantic and TCB. We're talking today in today's episode about all things dev and tech at Flix, as well as reflect on Daniel's journey, becoming an entrepreneur and leading technology from pre-seed all the way to pre-IPO. Look forward to all things dev here and especially to Flix OS, which is the tech platform powering Flixbus organizations worldwide. Welcome to the craft. Hi, hi, Daniel. Uh, welcome to today's fourth episode of The Craft. Uh, excited to have you here. Uh, amazing to kick off 2024 uh, together with you here on the show. Uh, whereabouts in the world do I reach you? Uh, how are you today? Hey, Patrick. Hey, crafties. I literally, I, I kind of always think about beer. Um, I also thought about beer when you sent it over. Um, uh, glad, glad, glad to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation. You reach me in our Berlin office. We recently moved uh, uh, within Berlin, and and yeah, happy happy to kick off 2024 together with you. Nice. Did you have some uh, time off? I did. Uh, I did. You know, I Christmas did. And, uh, the new the year? good thing is how how do how do you spend that? Yeah, time? Yeah, the good thing is you know if you look at operations with Flix, um, then there is uh, that's one of these high season times. So um, uh, right. I'm very thankful to our operation folks and the drivers and stuff that they uh, have been doing a great job. For the rest, um, like the office people like myself, it's it's calm time. Some of them sit here to really work on their backlog. I personally took time off to, to enjoy with the family. We were um, in, United, uh, in the United Arab Emirates. And, um, you know, not in Dubai, but a bit, you know, off skirt to just do nothing. Um, personally took a day or half day to dive and the rest uh, I was with my kids and nieces and nephews and the family and just uh, recharged a bit uh, read uh, read you know some some newspapers some things here and there and just had a good time I apparently gained almost five kilos because I realized after you reach oh, wow. a certain <laughs> a certain age uh, just sports doesn't move the needle you literally have to look at what you're consuming especially if it's you know uh, bottles of red wine at night fair enough fair enough is it possible to come to be completely off uh, if you run an organization at the scale uh, of a flick yes so i mean i don't turn off my mobile because you never know 
as an executive uh, uh, when shit can hit the fan. We have, um, you know, uh, even in kind of executive uh, uh, patriot duty 24-7 uh, Ron Robin thingy. And why? Because, um, I mean, we move people. This is what Flix does. And obviously things can go wrong. And it's just, you know, we do everything to prevent that. And I think uh, security, not only uh, from an IT point of view, but safety is uh, our highest priority. Nevertheless, you know, it's just about big numbers. Things can go wrong. And depending on um, the level of severity, um, uh, people uh, can reach out sea level as well, um, either to take decisions or, you know, if it's um, uh, communications and public relations related, uh, you have to act. Or, uh, you know, for me in, in particular role as um, uh, CIO, it's, it's, it can be also if, if, you know, a system failure occurs. But that happens very, very irregularly. Um, and usually, you know in advance which executive, um, you know, is on, on call. And if you're not on call, you could even, you know, switch out the phone. But I don't do it. It's, it's kind of like a, a habit. Beside those uh, emergencies, you can be completely off. I mean, that's the beauty about a large organization. Some things are not as great because you become a bit detached and you really have to balance your day-to-day -day business where you can measure your impact. So you have a kind of level of satisfaction with a strategic work where it takes much more time to see the impact. So, and then you have to work with, you know, eventually hundreds of people and, you know, people are it's, it's human beings, it's an organism. There's every day things are different uh, to the good and to the bad. That's, that's, you know, the challenges, which I like. But the beauty, the be beauty about a certain size is we have hundreds of people in engineering and tech, and each and everybody of them is, um, you know, on their roles, they're carrying much better than myself. So I have anyhow a bunch of people who can do the job much better than I do, and then, and therefore nobody needs me, apparently, unless shit hits the fan. And we all hope that it doesn't uh, happen too often, right? Uh, you mentioned uh, the CIO title. If I look into, you know, the... The social networks out there, you do have another title as well, Chief Organizational Plumber, yeah. if yeah. I got it right. What does that mean? And also you mentioned it's, uh, you know, at that scale, you can think about strategic projects yeah. as well. What are the key strategic projects for a Chief Organizational Plumber for 2024? So if you look uh, at Flix as a group, we have a management board consisting of our finance guy, our CFO, Christoph. Know, legal procurement finance. We have um, Andre, our CEO, my co-founder, who oversees you know the entire business, all of our countries, including also the commercial platform functions, together with his um, uh, two fellow C-levels, Max and Fabian. And um, then we have myself. And from a management board perspective, I'm accountable for the Flex Tech and also for our people organization, so you know, HR in the classical sense. And my official title from the day one on is uh, CIO, some would call CTO. I, I on purpose didn't, um, didn't pick the, the, the T though. But when I figured over time, what I do is trying to enable our people to be as productive as possible, to move as fast as possible. And uh, that very quickly also in tech became an exercise of organizational building. You know, um, talking about Conway's law, making sure the organization fits the architectural needs and 
um, how the, 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 the tax strategy, you know, looks like. And then when I took over um, the people, at some at some point, you know, eventually you realize as an executive, as a co-founder, um, from the experience I shared among building up FlixTech, what I do is to really make sure if shit hits the fan or, you know, if the pipes um, are being congested, I'm like a Luigi. And I'm on purpose picking Luigi, not Super Mario, because Luigi is the one who wears green um, and run around uh, and just, you know, Right. Plum the stuff away so the people we hired, the people who were best in the jobs they were doing, yep. can run yep. as fast as they yeah. as they could. Um, one question, like why green? You probably got that already oh. 50 times, but just for the you crafties know, out green there. Is, why Luigi? Why green? <laughs> green? I mean, green is the company color of Flix. Green is uh, uh, hope, and green shows very clearly that our vision is uh, to to have sustainable and affordable mobility. So, you know, for each and everyone to experience the world and, and um, yeah. you know, sustainability is important to us. And I think it's been, you know, pretty, pretty well shown by the green color. And you also, you know, you, you can recognize that green we've, we've picked a pretty, pretty good, I think. And ultimately, when you look into history, Flix in the beginning used to be blue. When we merged together with Mein Fernbus, we just uh, picked the name, which is easier to internationalize on the one hand, and the color, which we all, you know, the, the co-founders on the Mein Fernbus side and on Flix side, which we all thought um, shows better our purpose and the, the vision we're working towards. And you mentioned um, speed. So it's about you enabling speed of the organization, right? And in particular, the tech organization. Um, and I, I was also discussing with someone on the engineering team at Netflix, and they also have the premise of, you know, speed and freedom even for engineering teams. If I look today, it's different companies, right? Uh, or different perceived companies to, to some extent. Um, what's the tech in Flix What's the platform in Flix? Like you probably have 500-ish people working in engineering. Uh, what's the purpose and what do they power today? So basically, um, this is a bit of um, a special animal. In the meantime, in the scene itself, you know, engineers know um, why they would join Flix. But in the beginning, they didn't. From the outside, um, uh, we move people. This is what we do. Um, the way we do that, um, how international, how easy from you know a customer point of view and ultimately also how how affordable so cheap even that's been powered by um, FlixTech the underlying platform yep. and um, you know the reason is that we serve our customers together with a bunch of mobility and bus partners and train partners throughout the bunch of regions and countries so the sheer size of you know hundreds of millions of, of people we transport and even more you know requests uh, hitting our platform the matter of fact that the regulatory and how we do that is different in each and any other region and that we obviously don't do that with a single partner but with a bunch of hundreds of them makes that system kind of complex and you know that complexity is being tackled um, with our Flix techies. So the platform itself has been structured alongside our domains, which basically mirror our business functions. So um, you have 
um, underlying one foundation domain where we uh, really you know create uh, created the the interface between the teams the, the engineering teams and you know um, the pure infrastructure the hyperscalers these kind of things and those folks um, are responsible for you know underlying security for you know providing um, Flix OS, which is kind of like the artifact um, uh, uh, on top of, in our case, you know, AWS towards the teams. They take care about you know running our uh, messaging components, uh, Kafka in our case, um, uh, all that containerization topics, these kind of things. So the engineering teams itself can easily um, pop the tools they they need to and just focus on the context, so the the, the, the customer requirements. So ultimately what they want to solve, which problems. And uh, those engineering teams are being structured uh, alongside the, the business functions in, in, in other domains. There's, you know, a marketing domain and there is a network planning domain and there is a revenue management domain and there's a finance domain and so on and so forth. And within these domains, um, you have a bunch of independent teams who carry and own at least one product independently end to end. So there's a product owner and then there's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of functions you need depending on on the necessity there's usually always a bunch of engineers and uh, testers sometimes you know there's data scientists sometimes there's um, ui or ux folks it depends a bit on the product of course when they independently um, uh, work together with their business counterparts um, slash our customers um, on you know the actual solutions um, trying to understand the problems um, you know building out uh, the requirements and then you know creating great uh, great piece of software and uh, these uh, these uh, you know I, I don't like microservice per se but these kind of products that that, that software is following a service oriented architecture so they independently live on that platform um, communicate uh, with each other through Kafka in our case and and that's how it's been structured. Um, as I said, we we are mainly 99% or so um, on top of AWS. The reason is uh, back when we started and migrated everything from um, on-prem into cloud, they were the only one who uh, were able to provide that truly international. We must not forget that from Chile to India, we kind of uh, cover that entire world. And um, there you have to make sure, um, you know, you, you find partners who are able to also um, support you as international as you you are yourself. So that's kind of how um, the structure looks um, from yeah, from birth. Maybe perspective. one point there, and I I need to double click on that is you know why why don't you like uh, microservices? I heard that already uh, from from some people in the in the in the ecosystem, and because, obviously there is a movement because to, the know, overhead less complexity. It's it's a it's a it's, a, it's a overhead question. It's yeah. an overhead question. So. Uh, when microservices came up, uh, there was a saying, uh, micro is the definition of uh, if you want to rebuild a service, it takes you know, a bunch of days, even. In order to do so, you have to think about these kind of service components in a specific way. And if you look then about almost, you know, hundreds of thousands of microservices, well, that becomes very complicated and you have to think about how to manage uh, them. And therefore, you know, there are certain things you need for each and every microservice. And that, you know, you basically double or quadruple or whatever multiply. And I think the overhead, uh, overhead you create is, is, is too heavy. And then you have to come back and question, why would you do that? So why would you do, why would you cut them? You know, services, service orientation, independency, all good. 
But why would you cut it as tiny as you can literally replace it almost on a weekly basis? This is not a use case. It doesn't make sense. And um, and then you create complexity, and then you know the overhead will eat up uh, your productivity because you know at the end there are companies who are pure software companies, and then you eventually have mar margins as we had uh, at Microsoft. For many companies like Flix is a very powerful or maybe the most you know relevant USP Flix has, but it remains a supporting tool. With the power of Flix Tech, we can provide better services towards moving people. But we move people. This is how we earn money. And moving people means in that business, high volume, low margin. And therefore, you have to really have efficiency in mind. I cannot just build the greatest you know, software because it's beautiful and follow each and every trend. I always have to make sure how does it scale, not only from a technical point of view, but also from an economical point of view. And that's something which, uh, you know, some of the pure techies have not in mind when they, you know, really start diving deep into the cool new stuff. At the end, it's about money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, and I mean, probably if I take a look into the, the, the annual costs you, you guys have for AWS, for all the tooling around it, for Datadog and so on, it's probably still very high, right? Even though you don't have the multi hundred microservices up and running. Um, maybe just like to come back on that one question around, you know, what are the strategic goals, I guess, for, let's make it very specific for Flix OS, kind of like the foundational platform, right? Do you have anything in mind for that in 224, which is significantly different versus, you know, last year? Not different. It's more a development we um, evolve. So uh, security and compliance becomes more and more Uh, something we uh, talk about more explicit. I think we were always um, we were always clear and everybody's sure that dealing with that many customer data is uh, important. And therefore, um, I'm happy that um, we have a great security uh, identity identification, so to say. But um, you know, if you become more professional, larger, you also have to create certain artifacts for compliance and security documentation, blah blah blah. And I do want to do that without too much overhead, you know, and therefore you have to make things more explicit and talk about and define kind of like requirements engineering. And then even for these kind of things, I believe, you know, large language models can be supportive to, you know, uh, unburden um, engineers with, you know, documentation and stuff like that. Um, and these kind of things we're looking into um, because of the size and necessities. And also, as I mentioned earlier, efficiency, always looking at how you can do it the cheapest way ever. And, You know, that's the good thing also about FlixOS and um, that abstraction layer, because obviously underneath, you know, um, you eventually can leverage spot instances and whatever is needed. That's not a problem, but there's no direct connection because obviously we've been working with Kubernetes a while already. And then you can, you know, compute, you can fire up whatever is the cheapest solution. You find out with um, your DevOps engineers together in our sense again with AWS. And on top of that, you can build the services which make logically the most sense. And in many cases, it's not a microservice, but just a service. Yeah. No, I mean, there's also this whole debate around cloud repatriation. So kind of, you know, pushing even though, you know, efficiency is already at a scale in cloud environments where it's 98% optimized and the budgets are still going up and up uh, and the prices go up and up. Uh, so kind of some people obviously claim in the industry that, you know, 
some pieces of the, the, the stack and especially the data layer needs to be on-prem again in order to manage the, uh, the exploding costs, right? Any, any take on that? It's again, I mean, basically when that, when that uh, cloud hyperscaling hype started, they wanted to have everything on their end, which makes sense. It's kind of like receiving electricity out of, out of power sockets and stuff like that, and then creating a certain dependency. I totally understand, makes sense. But the data example is a good one though. You have to really look into what's the need. And I do not necessarily agree, it's just becoming more expensive because you drop data there. You know, if it's data to dump, to eventually use, because you have to keep it for 10 years or whatever, you can easily put it on, you know, S3, and then it's not necessarily expensive. But as soon as it becomes transactional, and, um, you know, one example is uh, um, all that evaluation of big data, um, data leaking up until, you know, Snowflake, well, then it's highly transactional and it's and it's super fast and 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 it's a cool piece of software, but it's hilariously expensive, hilariously expensive. And then you can easily cut it and you can put it back to you know on prem if you want. But I would always recommend to start first to uh, uh, also in that pure tech context to look at the problem at the requirements. You don't need to have everything in Snowflake. You don't can work with everything on S3 because you know. To dump, cool, if you need it, well, it also becomes very expensive. Um, but, you know, it's a question of, there's so many tools meanwhile out there. And yeah, the easy ones they provide eventually turn out to be not the cheapest, but it's our, you know, as techies, it's just our effort. And I think responsibility to figure out what's the requirements and then choose. And it can also lead to, hey, something I can't just put on premise in a, in a cabinet or whatever. Um, but it's not that easy to just pull away because, um, you know, if you grow as fast and become as international as Flix, I could not have done that without the cloud. No, that makes sense. And I also heard you guys were one of the first Snowflake kind of German DACH customers. Yeah. So I think... Uh... And it's a powerful tool, but yet it becomes very expensive yep. uh, if you don't split the data to the specific yep. uh, use cases, right? Maybe just one point, and I hope I count correctly, you're 13 years now an entrepreneur, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, or probably in the 14th yeah, could, year now. Could, yeah, uh, kind, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of like that. I think uh, the original incorporation of uh, the former company before Flix called GoBus, GBH, that was the yep. predecessor, uh, should have yeah. been end of 2011. If you reflect back, and I mean like some of the crafties, as you lovely called them here, the listeners, uh, some of them either are technical founders already or strive to become, you know, CTOs slash co-founders in, in early stage technology ventures. Um, maybe just like going a little bit into, you know, some advice from, from you and your uh, journey, I guess, at, at Flixbus. Like how do you start right like where do you start if you say hey i have this great idea um i want to launch something right i need to i, I want to launch a tech uh, organization and tech product how do you select the initial tech stack and i think some points you already mentioned right think about the problem you have right but how do you build it and how much is the foundation you set yeah. kind of um determining yeah. where you go or can you yeah. change the tech stack or the tech core to that so extent. the example you took some people pull things out of the cloud back to on-prem because of cost when we started almost everything was on-prem we started with hatzner 
some people had microservices and uh, a totally decoupled and very fragmented um, you know, setup. And then you have read, uh, meanwhile, why Netflix and others for a certain purpose, it doesn't make sense anymore. There's even kind of a monolithic comeback. So what I want to say is it's always back and forth. It's a moment. And therefore, as you um, uh, repeated, I'd always start at a bunch of things to look at first. What's the actual problem? What do we want to solve? I remember back in the days when Klarna started, they, they selected Erlang as their first programming language. And I'm like, you can do so, but why would you? So only because it's cool, that might not be the right choice. So look at the problem. Second, look at what you're good at. So I'm a really bad programmer. I was a bit better in terms of infrastructure and DevOps. Essentially, the only thing which I was, I'm not even saying capable of, but kind of like, was, you know, we basically started with PHP just because it's easy. And um, and I was a bit familiar with, and you you find, you know, people, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but you find people. And and the answer can be different for other people. You know, if you, if you, uh, you know, you really started, you know, playing around with in the early days during your studies with a C sharp, cool, then it's C sharp, don't care. You know, it's, but what, what, what's your passion for? And the third area is about don't overthink it. At the end, and we had that in the beginning of the season, I think, um, of the show, I mean, speed matters. So, yes, you can take um, weeks, months, and hours to lay out the best super scaling architecture. And I remember back in the days how much time uh, we, uh, we used to define our database model initially to really make sure, you know, you don't have to change it because it's always a pain and stuff. But there's so many unknown unknowns. I just back in the days didn't know what, you know, what kind of use cases we are now having. And therefore, the early days of the database, this is just, it's different. And you, independent of how long you think, you will, you know, the market, the customers tell you any, any, any day new necessities, requirements, changes. So don't overthink uh, because speed matters. And if you, if, if you just take that and people ask me, I keep on telling, yes, we had quite an effort over the last 10 years to ongoingly restructure and rebuild our platform, our stack. We even two years, or maybe a bit longer, had kind of a, a huge decoupling initiative. We, we had to run away from our monolith. But it would always restart with the monolith. A, because it's speedy and it's handy. But you have to bit of like think about or realize already in advance, at some point in time, you have to crack it. So if you know that already, then it's not even a failure. And then I'd rather start with the monolith than discussing forever the best service or the best service-oriented architecture. And then at the end, you know, if you are not addicted to microservices, we touched it already, and talk about usual services, any usual service over time becomes a monolith itself. So you keep on, you know, you keep on cleaning up. A independent of what you do, you always have technical debt. And then you have to pay taxes. But you have to pay taxes. If not, you go to jail. And that's in tech not different than in real life. Uh, so just make it explicit and, and remind yourself and also the outside your business folks. You know, there is a reason and that was more, you know, in, in the software as a service world, you basically pay your fees, your monthly subscription. In the past, whoever purchased or bought software 
was used to paying a maintenance fee of about annually 20 to 30%. There's a reason because there is a tax you have to pay. And only if you program it your stuff in-house yourself, you also have to pay that. It's not you can, you know, cross out those, let it be 20% or so. You always have to put that into your calculation and into care. And and obviously, you know, that said, speed matters, what are you good at, what you're passionate at, you know, whether it's PHP, Java, .NET, Golang, I don't know. And and uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of, these things are the ones, if I'd look back, um, which mattered. Super, super helpful. I think speed came up a couple of times, uh, which is super relevant. Maybe now translating over to, let's say you achieved this, right? You find a problem, you custom your, your stack, you use the languages where you're best at, right? Um, and you go fast. How do you hire the right people at the right time in your engineering organization? You mentioned if you're at a scale of a Flix, like today, um, you do have the people you trust, right? Even You can go two, two weeks on holidays and uh, still everything runs. How do you start selecting those people and uh, who are those people? I can only share what I did. I acted very yes. pain-driven. So... Okay. In the beginning, we started, we had nobody. So I had to rely on external parties, suppliers. But at one point in time, you, you, you realize that the suppliers, the external parties, they start missing out context because they're externals. And then, you know, the effort to explain them, go through the requirements, and that whatever you'd order is also being delivered. Because without the context, that's kind of like you know, um, a bit of a surprise. So what told that to me that, That on the one hand, you want to have more internal capacity, which, you know, are on the way within the context. And I pretty early realized how important requirements engineering is, product ownership, things like that. And then you start doing that and you realize I'm not a really good product owner either, not even a good programmer. So I needed people who were good in that translation effort. And I did that because, you know, people then asked me, okay, what's the definition of done? What's the definition of ready? Can you put down and write down? your requirements and, and define your stories and blah, blah, blah. And I did that, of course, but it was painful. So you know, then you, know, you close the gap, you close the linear, the pain with having good product owners on the one hand. On the other hand, then when the team grew, you know, in the beginning as the first techie, you obviously also take care of the infrastructure, all the personal problems. And then this is painful. And then you're like, okay, we need someone who uh, people can go to so I don't have to fix a lot of issues anymore. And then, you know, if you're a bad programmer and are only capable of eventually solving, solving any, any challenge with if, then you realize that, you know, it doesn't really work. It takes you forever and your co-founders bug you. So then you find people who are just real good programmers, like classical nerds, because they do the job better. Then you release stuff and ship and then things regularly break and you cannot go two weeks on vacation. You even... You even kind of uh, unvoluntarily donate your weekends. Well, then you think about, okay, testing, QA. We better should not have shipped that shit. <laughs> and um, and then, well, you have a bunch of teams, a bunch of people who uh, work on a bunch of products. And then I kept on doing a bit of infrastructure stuff and things. And then you realize this was all really manual work, kind of like <laughs> handicraft. And then you come to automation. And I believe if you want to grow automation, DevOps, whatever you call it, our foundation domain, is in some areas undervalued because you don't see their efforts. But a good automation of your infrastructure is 
so much of a decisive factor in a key success factor because then you can really care about the actual problems if that thing is been automated and um, and you know at the fingertips things are being provisioned and stuff like that and you don't have to really you know do do all this and then you have a bunch of roles and a bunch of people and then you always uh, you know add wherever you know, the need is increasing the capacity need is increasing but I was very pain driven when I when I tried to um, to find our first people to join on certain different roles. And if you fast forward uh, today, like how do you stay a cutting edge tech organization? Because one, you need to retain the people, right? Uh, because some of them build some of the core stuff, which is hard to replace. And on the other side, you will have more needs coming up while once you scale, right? And you will be it, at some point maybe a thousand engineers. To me, the answer like how do you stay this cutting edge, attractive kind of tech organization, to, to, attracting the to best? Me, the out answer there? is relatively simple: freedom. Okay, freedom. Um, it's not infinite freedom. Not everybody can do what he or she wants. No, we have some guidances. Um, we have, if yeah. we uh, our core guidances, if they want to be changed, they have fixed improvement. A proposal, so there are processes, controlling mechanisms. But in general, I didn't define them. I'm very outspoken and clear how I look at FlixTech in general and what I expect from us as guardrails. But how within these guardrails we move, it's up to the people. And therefore, the answer again is freedom. If you have enough freedom and you make sure, you know, there's psychological safety, you have built an organization which is probably set up. If you regularly sync between the architectural future needs and the organization in terms of Conway's law, I mentioned it already. So it's balancing to open shit software. And you ultimately make sure that the people understand how you think about what's the context, what's the purpose of the company. Then freedom solves many of the problems because freedom attracts great talent. Great talent, you know, basically can do great work. And if they understood, you know, what I what I said, they will also act as great human beings. And then, you know, uh, they do the cutting edge stuff wherever it's needed and helpful and also valuating. And they eventually don't do the cutting edge shit just for the sake of cutting edge. But eventually, you know, in our case, uh, we do Flix Labs, which is kind of like regular hacker days. And then they really do also things which eventually never see in production, but sometimes, uh, sometimes it does. When, when can we expect to see a... Uh... Um, application from Flix on the newly launched uh, ChatGPT store. I think it's 14 hours <laughs> since their launch, right? So uh, yeah. hard, it's already hard, something in, in production or hard, not? Hard yet? to predict. <laughs> uh, we're playing around not only with ChatGPT, but also with a bunch of other um, LLMs. And, um, and I've seen quite some good use cases already internally. That's the same question yep. as with open source. Our folks are allowed yep. to release stuff on open source on different you know stores. Whether it's you know, uh, you know, ChatGPT itself, you may only uh, you know may only put our API behind because everything else you can do bare metal already. So it's not like uh, an Apple App Store though, or, or or Google. But in terms of you know just being outspoken and put things out there, people can. Some they do, some they don't. I can't predict when it will happen on um, on the ChatGPT store. Let's let's see what what comes from from you you guys in 2024. Uh, we're coming up on time already. Uh, this was fun. This was great. Uh, as always, to to close it out um, here at the craft, kind of the simple question, right? Uh, you 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 said already in the beginning, craft. You think about beer. 
but lots of people also think about software engineering. So what's your definition of craft in software engineering and what's the one you guys are most, most proud of having created at Flix? Internally, I'm um, usually talking more about art, you know, what, uh, okay. rather, than, Closely uh, rather, attached. Than, rather yeah. than craft, but I guess it's the same. And the definition is yep. um, being able to simplify complexity and the the most proud craft is on the edge on the interface between the, the real world you know, the customers challenges the requirements and the engineers so and yep. yes you have certain roles who are kind of the craftsmen and women like POs <laughs> but i also really encourage each and every engineer to make sure to understand the business, to understand the customer needs, to understand the requirements, and to, to translate that. And that translation effort is um, the most relevant one, which I personally also don't believe will be easily been transformed into some AI coding robots, but that will remain um, human for quite a while, um, uh, prompt engineering back and forth. The world is yet too complex for even uh, great AI. Cool. Daniel, thanks so much for sharing uh, all of the, the learnings. Uh, thanks for joining. Uh, wishing you a lovely day in the Berlin Flix office and talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.